Fusion, the international science radio show. We have a bouncer and the doors of perception. The good, the bad, the ugly. It gets pretty exciting. The myths, the truths. Toxicology. Astro seismology. Magnetism. The dark side. Genetically engineered potatoes. Planetoid. Planetoid. I love that word. <laughs> <laughs> Hello and welcome to Diffusion. Sit back and relax while we inject weird and wonderful science directly into your brain. I'm Ian Wolfe. This week I ask nuclear power for Australia and hear from the three minute thesis competition. But first up, here's the news. Glass up. The race to market affordable wearable computing continues with GlassUp, who are raising funds to build an augmented reality display in glasses. Unlike Google Glass, the glasses will look like normal spectacles and can be made with prescription lenses. GlassUp is also different in that the display is right in front of you instead of up and to the right. This presents less of a safety problem and less eye strain. For example, you could run with the glasses on and see a display projected of your speed and how far you've run right in front of you. You can also have texts, emails and other information from your smartphone displayed transparency on the glasses. It's like reading information on the windscreen of your car, whereas Google Glass is like looking in a rearview mirror. The GlassUp glasses are displaying information in just one colour, currently green, but it may switch to amber, reminiscent of the old green screen video display terminals of the 1980s. This should extend the battery life compared to a full-colour display. The project is seeking $150,000 in crowdfunding from Indiegogo, but has enough private investment to go ahead if they don't raise the full amount. They're offering a prescription glass up for $400. They say they have no privacy issues because the focus is on the display, not a camera. However, amongst the perks for donors on the Indiegogo site are models that include a camera. Watch this space. If you're in Sydney, Robo Wars is on this weekend, August 3rd and 4th, at 107 Projects, located at 107 Redfern Street, Redfern. Watch robots battle robots. It's awesome. Nuclear energy for Australia? The Australian Academy of Technological Sciences and Engineering organised a two-day national conference, appropriately enough, at the Powerhouse Museum in Sydney, to ask the question of whether Australia should decide to build nuclear power stations. My first impression was that the conference was overwhelmingly attended by people who were very enthusiastically in favour of nuclear power for Australia. The phrases optimum mix and the right mix, the correct mix of energy or in the mix came up very often. You'll hear them in every single interview on TV with an advocate for nuclear power for Australia. I interviewed five people, which is too many to fit in this show, so you'll hear some more next week. At the conference, I spoke with Erica Smythe, chairman of the uranium mining company Toro Energy. The company has been granted environmental approval and is seeking capital support to start construction of its uranium mines. She chaired the conference session about the environmental, social and political challenges for nuclear power stations. I asked her for her best arguments for why nuclear power is right for Australia. For me, if we want to look at the health of the world with respect to uh, electricity production, then nuclear power uh, is in the mix now and it should be in our mix as well. 
we have a chance to develop on the back of some really good technology that's in place and for for us to leave ourselves out of that we will have to pay the price in other ways there is no magical solution that is risk free for electricity production anywhere in the world so it's it's how do we get a good mix of risk and for me, not having nuclear in that mix reduces our options and will lead us down a path of less desirable uh, electricity outcomes. To the people that are concerned about issues like what do you do with the nuclear waste, what would be your answer? I think there are sensible solutions to that. Practical Finland is a, is a country that is showing us the way but I don't think we should be put off by that. If we apply our minds, we can technically uh, deal with uh, handling nuclear waste and we can secure it in Australia far more sensibly than most other countries. So we, uh, we are in an ideal situation to look at what the whole world is doing and to say, well, n now we can look at that and say we can do it as well as anywhere in the world. And people say that nuclear waste has to be stored for 240,000 years. How much does it cost to guard something for 240,000 years? Well, I mean, I, I think we've got that equation really so has got very emotional. It isn't that difficult to store things underground. It isn't that difficult to secure it chemically. You know, we, we've got technology to do that. It's very hard to... All you have to do is is get it out of the way. <laughs> you don't have to have people standing around with guns protecting it. It's not something you can easily lift up and take away. Uh, to my mind, it's just securing it from a chemical and a sensible point of view. So uh, I, think, uh, I think we've got very stable geology. I'm a geologist by training. Uh, I know we've got stable geology where we can store it uh, if we set our minds to it. And what about the people who are concerned about the safety in the wake of some of the disasters at some nuclear reactors like Fukushima? You know, there, there are, there are uh, safety issues for every source of energy we choose to use. And to say that uh, nuclear is more dangerous than any other, uh, I think, is wrong. I think we have got really good safety mechanisms in place and if we look uh, carefully at what happened at Fukushima then uh, the exposure of people to uh, an immediate danger uh, was dealt with very maturely. We'd learnt from Chernobyl what we should be doing and, and the Japanese did it and so therefore not a lot of people have been exposed to significantly higher health risks because they got their act together. We learnt where we're human beings learn quickly and I think it, Fukushima should be looked at as actually a very positive uh, way of saying, well, we learnt from that. It, some people have been, have been psychologically harmed. There has been some cost to people's health. I don't dispute that at all. But look at the number of people that are killed in other 
killed or maimed or hurt in our other forms of energy production. It's happening all the time. You can't avoid it. I think nuclear is as safe as any form and we should just be working to make it even safer. On that note, what about the people who would say that solar power doesn't have the waste disposal issues and doesn't have the danger in the running of the plants? Look, solar power has a place in our energy future. I, I don't doubt that at all. But to think we, we are not in a place where we can you know, uh, store solar power uh, adequately yet and recover it so that our electricity supply is stable and cost-effectively. So I think there is a place for solar. No, I don't doubt that. And I think it would be a danger not to, uh, uh, not to do that in a far greater way than we are at the moment. But it's not one thing or the other. We still need a, a, a very solid um, baseload power generation that runs all the time and it runs, runs sensibly and economically and safely and nuclear should be part of that mix for Australia. And what's the cost of not going nuclear? The cost to Australia is that we leave ourselves out of a technological solution that the rest of the world is already using. And we should, we should have some of that in our country and we it, we shouldn't say, well, let's go 100% nuclear. I'm not suggesting that at all. But I think we should have nuclear in our bag of solutions. I would just like us to have a chance for everyone to start to talk about it without the minute we open our mouths being shot down. So let's have a sensible conversation where we can address people's concerns. I have no doubt people have concerns about it. So let's talk about those concerns and let's have some sensible discussion about the pros and the cons of all of our choices not, and not leave nuclear out of the discussion. Well, Erica Smythe, thank you very much. Okay, thank you. That was Erica Smythe, chairman of Toro Energy, who expects to open a uranium mine soon. Erica is also an independent director of the Australian Nuclear Science and Technology Organisation, ANSTO, at Lucas Heights. You can find out more about Toro Energy at www.toroenergy.com. You're listening to Diffusion Science Radio. Send emails to science at diffusionradio.com. We're brought to you across Australia on the Community Radio Network and podcast over the internet on www.diffusionradio.com. Timo Akis is the corporate advisor for Pasiva Oi, which has managed nuclear fuel and nuclear waste for the companies which run the nuclear power plants in Finland for decades. He spoke at the Nuclear Power for Australia conference about how Finland handles nuclear waste and his plans for finally putting nuclear waste into long-term storage. I began by asking him how nuclear waste is handled in Finland. Nuclear waste management is part of the safe use of nuclear power in our country. And we have already built the repositories for low and intermediate level waste, so-called short-lived waste. And they have been operated, there are two repositories, and they have been operated since 92 and 98. And currently we are applying a construction license for a deep geologic repository for the high-level waste, which is the spent nuclear fuel. Low-level waste is the so-called operational waste, which come from the 
Most of it comes from the outages when the when the nuclear power plant is serviced. Well, there is some called also the maintenance waste, and the intermediate level wastes in they typically are uh, purification masses, ion exchange masses of the process water, which are changed frequently, and then they become a bit contaminated with the particles of corroded from stainless steel, for example, and then they are disposed of underground. So the low-level repository is underground? Oh, it's underground. It's uh, At the other side, it's about uh, at the depth between 60 and 100 meters, and the other side has uh, uh, about 100 meters below, in granitic fractured crystalline rock. And the high-level waste, how will it be stored? High-level waste, uh, that is nuclear fuel now, has been in, uh, stored in the interim storage facilities and it's waiting for permanent disposal which is com planned to start 2020 in Finland. And uh, that will be disposed of in a deep geologic repository around 450 meters depth in a bedrock and it will be, for the disposal, it will be sealed in uh, corrosion-resistive copper-iron canisters which will be in, in placed in the disposal tunnels. So inside the canisters, is it solid waste or liquid waste? It's solid waste. It's a, they are uh, used fuel bundles. They, are, they look similar as they were when they were put in the reactor. The temporary storage that it's in while it's waiting for the permanent storage, what's the temporary storage like? Uh, it's a, our, te our intermediate storage or interim storage is a pool type storage where the fuel bundles are in um, storage racks uh, and they are covered with water which is circulated and the water also removes the heat which fuel still generates and uh, there are two time periods that we have to wait for about 20 years because of the heavy radiation which fuel still has before we can start to dispose of it and then again the, temp the heat generation has to be low enough when we, that we can put it in the canisters so that the canisters would not be heated too much. And how long will the high-level waste have to be in these geological repositories? Forever. It's a permanent disposal. So it's a, the idea is that, the, that once we dispose of the canister, so in the repository what we do, we have to meet so-called initial state. That is, you, you could you could say that that's a last man-made action and we can state that we can we have fulfilled all the requirements required for a safe permanent disposal and then it's left underground forever it's it will never be retrieved it can be retrieved if wanted but it we don't it doesn't have to for the safety reasons so the canister and other barriers take care of the safety with the long term well i just believe that the safe nuclear waste management is part of the nuclear power generation so that once like here in Australia people are now discussing about it so please don't forget about the waste so it, it belongs to the business. Well Dr. Akers thank you very much. You're welcome. That was Timo Akers making sure we don't forget that nuclear waste is part of the nuclear power industry. Timo manages nuclear waste at Posiva for power companies in Finland. I was asked by Danska on Twitter to speak to an expert on thorium. 
Thorium is very plentiful in the world, so there's long been an interest in using it as an alternative to uranium and plutonium. Thorium can't start a nuclear reaction on its own, it needs uranium or plutonium to supply the neutrons to start a chain reaction. Massimo Sabatores is senior scientific advisor to the director of nuclear energy in France, and senior advisor at the Idaho National Laboratory in the USA. For 50 years, Massimo has studied thorium as an alternative nuclear fuel source, and now is one of the leading world experts on the thorium fuel cycle. You know, it's my uh, first love, uh, thorium. I did uh, graduate 50 years ago on uh, thorium reactors, so uh, I'm, uh, I'm very interested in, uh, in that technology. Uh, there are a number of positive points about uh, thorium <coughs> reactors. Well, the point is that to develop them now, one would ma should make a very big uh, technological effort since so much has been spent in uranium cycle and uranium reactors. There is probably some uh, possibilities in the, in the much longer term. Uh, there are different uh, possibilities of using, for example, very innovative fuels like the molten salts, which are not innovative, but it could be become innovative based on thorium. And this could be a, a good, nice, interesting combination for the long future. I've heard people say that the molten salt solution is safer than traditional reactive designs. No, I don't, uh, I don't think that uh, one can say safer. Uh, it's the safety case for a thorium, uh, uh, molten salt so, uh, thorium reactor is a safety case as uh, uh, demanding uh, uh, as for a uranium solid fuel uh, uh, reactor. Uh, it poses different type of problems and that have to be solved. One cannot say it's very difficult and usually uh, to be avoided to say this is safer than that one. Every time I've heard the thorium fuel cycle mentioned, they don't seem to tell me what is the waste that comes out of a thorium reactor. Well, the waste coming for, uh, out from the, um, a thorium reactor, there are of course not uh, plutonium isotopes, uh, there are the isotopes of uranium, uh, like uranium-232, uranium-233. So in this sense, uh, there are, in terms, for example, of the long-term radiotoxicity, there is some advantages with respect to uranium fuel uh, in the medium term and back to approximately the same radiotoxicity as the uranium uh, uh, cycle after some 10,000 years or something like that. And are the proliferation issues different for thorium? Well, they are different but they do exist. The, the, the production of uranium-233, which is essential for the running of a thorium reactor, can pose uh, threats uh, as uh, in the case of uh, plutonium. You know, of course, the, the, the same precautions, uh, the same uh, uh, mitigation of risks, uh, or the non-proliferation approach should be used for also for this type of reactors. And how close are we to having thorium reactors? Does anyone have a thorium reactor in the world? I think that this is the point that I was mentioning in the very beginning. To develop uh, uh, thorium uh, reactors, you really have to uh, make a big effort that no one is doing uh, in the right scale uh, uh, at present. The only thing that I am, uh, unfortunately, I'm old and too old to 
to hope to see a thorium reactor operating uh, soon, but uh, I think it would be worthwhile to have an international, well-funded program uh, to make them uh, a reality. Dr. Salvatores, thank you very much. Okay, thank you. That was Dr. Massimo Salvatores, Senior Advisor to the Director of Nuclear Energy in France and World Expert in Thorium Nuclear Power. You can hear more interviews about nuclear power for Australia, about thorium, and the view from the other side next week. Last week, the UTS science faculty held their three-minute thesis competition. Students have three minutes to explain their research to educated laymen with only one slide, but cash prizes, and a chance at the university and national competitions. Professor Greg Skilbeck explains. The three-minute thesis is a competition that started at the University of Queensland as a way of getting their graduate students used to talking about their thesis to a lay audience or to an open audience. It's about science, I think, communicating with the outside world. We don't do it very well, we're trying to do it better. It started there, it's gone viral since then. Um, it's spread out, I think, it's in pretty much all the universities in Australia participate and it's international as well because there's New Zealand uh, participation as well and there's a national competition um, and some fairly significant prizes involved at the end of the day I have to say. You get lots of variety, you get lots of people spending time telling you about what they're doing and concentrating more I think on what they're trying to do rather than telling you about all the data they've collected. So you don't see a lot of graphs and, and curves and things, but you do hear about some exciting things that people are trying to do. Here's Joanna Howes with Hungry for Change, Maintaining Balance on the Great Barrier Reef. Have you ever been hungry? Like I'm talking so hungry you've lost the ability to form coherent sentences. Hunger is your body's way of telling you that you should clearly eat that hamburger that you should give it the nutrients it needs in order to perform normally in your environment. Now it turns out that it's not all that different for many other species. Now, most, now I'm not saying that they all feel hunger, but most organisms require a certain balance of carbohydrates, proteins and lipids or fats in order to survive in their particular environment. Now out on the Great Barrier Reef, sclerotinian or hard corals, like the one on the screen behind me, have evolved to survive in the nutrient poor uh, tropical waters in which they live and they can get the food that they need from a number of different sources. So at its core, a hard coral is actually two different, two different organisms living in symbiosis or a mutually beneficial partnership. Now the host will feed, like us, but perhaps surprisingly it will get the majority of its food or energy from its uh, algal symbiont or partner, known as zooxanthellae. And the zooxanthellae will use, is photosynthetic, so that means it uses sunlight in order to produce food for itself and for the host. Now that kind of sounds like an ideal situation, right? Unfortunately, corals, maybe like your elderly grandparents, don't really appreciate change. So over the last few decades, we've been seeing an increase in what we call mass bleaching events. Um, and these are basically a mass exodus of the zooxanthellae from the host in response to environmental changes. So for the corals, loss of their symbionts is not unlike us being dropped into the middle of the Sahara Desert with no food or water and being expected to survive which unless you're Bear Grylls is not exactly an ideal situation. But one of the interesting things we're noticing about these mass bleaching events is that not all of the corals are affected. So what is it about some species of coral that makes them so special? So my PhD is looking at this very question. So using technology that's commonly applied in the material science industry but strangely perfect for environmental systems, I've been able to get a snapshot of the biochemistry of two different types of zooxanthellae. 
Now, one that is thermally tolerant and one that is, quite frankly, a little bit of a pansy. And I've been able to see that there are distinct differences in the biochemistry between these two types. And it's quite possible that these initial differences are giving one symbiont the edge over the other. Now, what this might mean for the uh, future of the reef in the face of climate change is still very much up in the air. And this is very much the first step in a long and complex process. But in order to understand how to protect these flourishing hotspots of biodiversity and halt their gradual decline, we need to know exactly how they operate. Unfortunately, I don't think the solution to the problem is going to be quite as simple as giving them a hamburger, but you know what they say, stranger things have happened at sea. Thank you. What, was the, what, what coral was in your photograph? That was Pocilopridemicornis, which is a fairly common hard branching coral. Is that your pansy one or your other one? Uh, it's generally a pansy. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Thank you, Diana. That was Joanna Howes with her three-minute thesis, Hungry for Change, Maintaining Balance on the Great Barrier Reef at the University of Technology, Sydney. The winner of the $500 first prize was Jamin Elliott for his talk, Protecting the Police, Physiological Associations with Shift Work. Runner-up, winning $250, was Daniel Wangsbrasert for Coral Biophotonics, and the People's Choice Award winner of another $250 was Daniel Wangsbrasert again. Congratulations to Jamin and Daniel, who go on to compete at the university-level competition for a $3,000 grand prize and a $1,000 runner-up prize. I'll be playing more of these talks over the weeks to come. You can find out more about the competition at www.3minutethesis.org. And that's all from us this week on Diffusion. Would you like to join us? We need more people contributing stories to Diffusion. You can send your contributions, opinions, congratulations, standing ovations, gasps of amazement and helpful suggestions to science at diffusionradio.com. That's science at diffusionradio.com. And please do send an email so we know you're listening and you want to hear more episodes. I produce Diffusion, which is broadcast around Australia on the Community Radio Network to more than 16 different stations and syndicated on the National Science Foundation's Science360 internet radio station. Ask your local radio station to broadcast Diffusion. Subscribe to our podcast on the Diffusion website, www.diffusionradio.com. That's www.diffusionradio.com. Big thank you to the University of Technology, Sydney, for helping me record the talks. I'm Ian Wolfe. Join us inside your audio device of choice for more science wondering next week on Diffusion Science Radio.